Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know, I am glad you're with me. You know what I'm excited about is talking with David Morgan. He's considered one of the world's foremost experts on silver, the whole thing, the metal, what influences it, the mines, etc. And he's got a fascinating view on what's coming next. And I just think it should be brought to your attention. You make your own choices, of course, here all the time. Uh, also, I've got Ozzy coming on. One of the things that I know I've been relentless about because it just drives me nuts when politicians stand up and say, we care about affordable housing slash rents. Well, you know what? The record speaks very differently. We're going to give you, I think, what is a shocking stat about how much that individual governments add to the cost of housing. Uh, I've also got a shocking stat. Great stuff on what happens when you just keep on printing up the money. Well, we'll tell you about that, plus much more. I've got Mike Levy with me. I've got Victor Adair with me. But first, got to admit, I was surprised this week when all of a sudden the great reset agenda espoused by the World Economic Forum was back again in the news. And some in the commentariat and self-described progressives say, hey, it's a conspiracy theory. Now, of course, conservative leader Pierre Polyev put the World Economic Forum back in the spotlight by promising that if elected prime minister, he'll ban ministers and other top officials from involvement with the World Economic Forum. Now, personally, I don't care if they go. I just don't want to pay for it as a taxpayer. You know, same thing I feel with the climate fest. They don't achieve anything. You can do it on a Zoom call. I don't need to be having my tax dollars go in that direction. I've got other priorities. But I do appreciate that for some people, group fests like that, like the WEF, are important. I simply have a problem, though, with those private jets, luxury hotels, lavish parties telling me how to live. And I also appreciate that some people, who are deeply troubled by the Great Reset, well, they can be way over their top in their accusations and fears. But come on, the Great Reset agenda is not a conspiracy theory. And it fly, to say that just flies in the evidence or the avalanche of all the evidence that's right there. I mean, it's not a secret agenda. None of that stuff. I mean, Klaus Schwab, founder of the World Economic Forum, has been upfront about the Great Reset agenda from the get-go. Come on, back June 4th, 2020, look at the website of the World Economic Forum. They've got Klaus Schwab, then uh, Prince Charles, released a statement of why we need to, in their words, we need to have a great reset, which features more influence of global organizations on issues like climate change, with more government involvement in society, and fundamental changes to the capitalist system. I mean, my goodness. July 9th, 2020, Klaus Schwab's book, COVID-19, The Great Reset, was published. July 13th, the World Econo- uh, 2020, the World Economic Forum website published the article, Build Back Better. We must reinvent capitalism. You know, in Schwab's book, he says, this pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems. Well, come on, just a couple of months later, September 220, you've got Prime Minister Trudeau echoing Schwab's words, saying that the pandemic was an opportunity to reimagine capitalism. That's not a coincidence. As for Schwab's phrase, build back better, does it ring a bell? Well, it should. It was adopted by the Democratic Party in July of 220 as their campaign slogan for Joe Biden's run for the presidency. Then, a short time later, the UK's Boris Johnson says his government would build back better. And that was echoed shortly after by the European Central Bank's Christine Lagarde. Boy, in August, though, you had Finance Minister Christia Freeland, who is on the WEF Board of Trustees. You got Prime Minister Trudeau, a participant of the WEF's Young Global Leaders Program, declaring it's time to build back better. Come on, suggesting that's a coincidence, they all came up with the same slogans, a bit ridiculous. But it's not a secret agenda. The World Economic Forum, the Great Reset, espouses a profound shift away from capitalism. More government intervention, more control by supranational organizations, less emphasis on democratic institutions. I mean, the goals are to build a more equitable, sustainable society, along with a global focus on fighting climate change, which means more government intervention as they reimagine capitalism. As usual, though, the key is in the details. How are they going to achieve those goals? For example, they promote the concept of stakeholder capitalism, monster change. That's the Great Reset's reimagining capitalism. Says that companies are no longer operating in the interest of shareholders, but in society as a whole. 
Come on, that's been the rationale for major government intervention, intervention rather, from what? You can go back to Nazi Germany to find stakeholder capitalism. You can go to China today to suggest, though, as many have, and I'm including things like CTV. I read a couple of their headlines. They called it a conspiracy theory to suggest the goal is to influence governments. Are you kidding? Influencing government is the goal of the entire lobbying industry. And the World Economic Forum and the Great Reset is no different. And by the way, they've already had some success. I'll give you a couple of from the headlines. I mean, farming and agriculture. Well, it was the WEF agenda in Sri Lanka to limit the use of fertilizer that led to uh, lower crop yields. Well, the WEF agenda calls for culling livestock, which led to the truckers' protests in the Netherlands. They're proposing now to cut 120,000 cows in Ireland. It's all in an effort to reduce methane gas. Now, obviously, some politicians are heavily influenced by the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, but not in any secretive way. I mean, Schwab and other elites who participate at the WEF are simply providing the ideological underpinnings for some politicians, businesses, and bureaucrats. And yeah, of course, they do have adherence in the Liberal government. But it's not a conspiracy because millions of Canadians support bigger government, support more intervention, more regulation. They support the focus on climate change and reinventing or reimagining capitalism, as the Prime Minister states. They support the concept of stakeholder capitalism and the emphasis on supranational, supranational governments. But others clearly don't. And that's the debate the media and the public should be focusing on. That's the big philosophical divide that voters are going to be asked to decide on, because it literally will determine the future of Canada. It's certainly no conspiracy. It's the reality, and it's incumbent upon all of us to understand what these issues are. David Morgan has been acknowledged as one of the foremost experts, whether you're talking precious metals, he looks at the overall economy, of course, uh, but silver, he's called the silver guru, and he joins me now. David, appreciate you finding time for us. Well, it's great to be back with you. Thank well, you. let's start with a little bit of uh, provocative uh, news is that you posted this on your Twitter, uh, Silver Guru 22, Silver Guru 22. You posted this uh, just a few days ago and you were basically saying, hey, look, you are looking for a significant decline, say, into October. And then you thought gold would be the one that sort of withstood that decline better than uh, than other precious metals. Yeah, it's based on, you know, recent history. I mean, most of the stuff any of us do, even, you know, the chart readers, and I am a technician as well as a fundamentalist. I find both. But if you look at what happened in 2008, I expect something similar. So gold fell the least mm -hmm. of all the asset classes. And I think it was about 30%, which is a hell of a haircut. But it also was the first to bounce back. Silver got clipped even more. It went from 21 to just under 9. But from that bottom, which was a very uh, short duration, silver went up from nine to almost 50, so over 500%. Gold, I think, doubled, yeah. if I recall correctly. So it outperformed, and that was the second leg up. And if you are an Elliott Wave believer, and I think the overall thrust of Elliott is correct, I certainly don't get into the nuances. The last leg, the third leg, which we're about to enter, usually is a twice as good as the middle leg. So what's that mean? It means if silver went up fivefold, then the next leg goes up tenfold. Now, I'm not saying that's a certainty. All I'm saying is it's a high probability based on how markets move. There's a leg up, a leg down, a leg up, a leg down. And then the final leg where I've, you know, took that uh, saying from Jeff Christian, who said it 20 years ago to me, 90% of the move comes in the last 10% of the time. So I went back and checked, and that's exactly what happened in 1980. It took 14, 15 years to go from $1.29, the actual monetary value of silver, to 6 bucks. And if adjusted for inflation, you'd held even or done a little better. But in that last year, Michael, it went from 6 to 52 So if you bought it at the all-time high, which who's supposed to buy a high, right? It went yeah. higher. A lot higher. And that's one thing that's never taught. 
you're actually better off buying a new high than you are buying a new low. Well, just also part of what you're saying there is, is part of at least my, just my personal experience is I, I never claim to be a trader. I don't have the emotional makeup for it. I'm an investor, you know, sort of put the macro trend and then drill down. But uh, it's something that, uh, you know, we chatted a, a little bit before is I, I just noticed the market. You have to have a position because it seems to once it decides to move in a particular area, once the focus comes to that particular area, it sort of validates what you're saying. It seemed to be such a sharp up move all of a sudden. You know, it's it's as you say, the big part of the move takes place in the last 10 percent of the time. And I, I just think that's an important point for people to focus on. Uh, I think it's a killer when investors act like traders. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to like if somebody says, hey, I think silver's, you know, we can pick any number, but going to 30, 40, 50, you know, I've got some analysts saying 70, you know, whatever. But are you really going to care if you bought it at 21 or 22? You know, which, you know, but right. I, and I've made that mistake. I, <laughs> you see how serious I am because I've made that mistake too often, you know, hopefully not not to be made again. But I think your point's just an important one for people to pick up on there. Well, just to quote the late Jim Dines, who wrote a book called Market mm. Psychology, and I learned this very early on and learned it by making mistakes like you just outlined, and that is the market will exploit your mm. weaknesses. So in other words, if you're impatient, you'll sell out just before yeah. the big move. Or if you're indecisive, the move, we'll just wait for the pullback that never comes and never yes. get back in. So the investor approach is really the best in my view, and dollar cost averaging is a good way for the average person to do it. And have a, uh, don't, you know, be addicted to the outcome as far as timing goes. I mean, I've been very good at timing the tops and rather poor at timing the bottoms. But if you have a long-term view, and I do trade and invest, yeah. and very few can do both because it takes a different mindset. But I can put myself in that compartment that trades and keep myself in that compartment that doesn't trade because I never trade more than 20, 25% at the most of my capital. And usually it's much less and usually it's done with leverage and often it works mm -hmm. out, but uh, not every time. But there's that core position that I keep no matter yeah. what. And I've kept it from 2000 to today. What do you think ultimately are going to be the fundamental drivers of silver? I mean, I talk a lot about, you know, the devaluation of purchasing power, for example, in paper currencies. But, uh, you know, there's more to it. And I know there's market dynamics to it, all those kind of things. So when you're looking at sort of for fundamental long-term drivers, what are you looking at? Well, you have to look for silver, both sides, which is industrial and investment demand. And industrial demand has gone from 35% of the market to 55% of the market over two decades. So that's mm -hmm. significant. And the trend continues with the photovoltaics yep. that are outlined by, you know, governments around the world. There's probably right now about 10, 12% of the market is solar. And probably in the next three or four years, it's going to be perhaps even double that, believe it or not. So that's part of it. But that's a subset. All markets move at the margin, and the margin is what's the variable. And the biggest variable is investment demand. So we had a lot of investment demand, and the retail market seized up or got very tight. Premiums went to the moon, especially for silver eagles from the United States. And we saw a lot of people you know, buying silver. Now that's subsided, but it's that part of the market. And the one thing about silver that I think is overlooked is what is its highest and best use? You could argue it's industrial. Mm -hmm. It's industrial. You know, it's cell phones, it's computers, it's membrane switches, it's all that stuff. But if you think about it long term, silver never got above a 20 to 1 ratio from the 13th century till present time. All those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And why is that? Because both gold and silver were exactly the same thing, money. So silver as money is actually its highest and best form as far as what it is worth. And all we need is like 1% of the population to function with silver as a means of payment or final settlement that would really drive the price a lot higher, again, investment demand. So that's what's going to take it. That's the catalyst. What's going to drive it? Well, well, I know what will drive it the most, and that's the bond market. When people realize that a dollar's value or a Canadian dollar or Aussie dollar or a peso or whatever is going to be worth less, you know, in two weeks or two months from today, why in the hell would you hold one for 30 years? And that means that reality is hitting the bond market yeah. now. The 10-year just made a breakout. And that's kind of the key to the kingdom because the debt markets are the markets, really.
the stock market is a subset of the of the bond market, really. Without financing, most of these companies don't exist. So what's financing? It's debt. So we are in a predicament that we've never been in on a global basis. It's happened before in certain, you know, nation states, and there's been, you know, commotions. I mean, you take Argentina about every 10 years. You look at Turkey, you can look at, you know, many nation states, but most of those smaller countries rely on the U.S. dollar. 60% of the cash money, I'm talking physical bills, is outside the United States. So if you're in Argentina and you're using the Argentine peso and the bank closes and you're savvy, you don't really care because you're using dollars. Your stash is, is U.S. currency. But when that fails, then we've really got a problem. Yeah, there's a, a, a lot to what you're uh, to come back on. I just want to come back to just the renewal, renewable energy situation in the solar. And again, that, you know, somewhat a new series of demand. And that doesn't look like it's going anywhere. And a lot of people don't appreciate, though, uh, Silver's role there. Yeah, well, it's uh, first of all, for the last oh, decade, there's been what's called thrifting in the industry. And that means less silver per panel with the same amount of mm -hmm. kilowatts output, which is what you want. I want you want that's efficiency of the market, the better mousetrap idea. However, what we've now discovered in the last, I guess, two years is that you're actually getting more kilowatts per ounce of silver by actually increasing the amount mm -hmm. of silver per panel. And that is something that Chen Lin brought to everyone's attention, mine included. He beat me at that one. And uh that is going to be 80% of the market. So the people that say, well, that's just, you know, a, a yeah. one-off, it's, you know, it's going to be 10% of the market are incorrect. It's going to be mainly the main market, which means, as I said, we could see, this is projection, almost a doubling in the amount of silver and photovoltaics over the next three or four years, as absurd as that, or as, as radical as that sounds. Uh, that's the projection. That's, that's the way we're going. And if you go further, I'll just make this, a little stronger case, Michael, and I, I'm not backing off on investment demands, what drives the market. That's the biggest variable. But if you just take investment demand as a non-variable, in other words, it's a steady 200 million ounces a year, let's say, you take the variable as being industrial. In 2030, we've run out of the ability to supply enough silver to the market. So it's, to me, still, as long as I've been at it, as long as I've been a silver advocate and blah, blah, blah. If you're 30, 40, or 50, and you want a legacy investment for your family, take a hard look at silver and prove me wrong. Because, you know, I like to educate. You know, you go in and you just do the studies yeah. that I've done. Don't have to go as deep as I do. But take a look at the facts and then tell yourself, you know what? On an inflation-adjusted basis, there's no, nothing cheaper than silver right now. So if you want to buy low... Here's your opportunity. And, and your point about, uh, you know, the demand uh, is much greater than the supply. It couldn't jump up supply very quickly. I mean, I look at how long it takes to get a mine in play, you know, and, I, you know, I talk to people in the industry and, you know, you hear seven to 10 years is what I would say is sort of the consensus there. So as mm -hmm. it would look to me, uh, as you're saying, the demand for solar, for example, is going to rise much faster than the ability to bring new uh, sources online. You know, so that that disc or that uh, unalignment is going to also put upward pressure on the metal. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a fascinating story at this point. And back to your what you've just said, boy, try it inflation adjusted. You know, we haven't had a move. Yeah. You know, and yeah, right. So that's that's correct. And just to add on to what you just said, Michael, the seventy percent of the silver market is a byproduct mm -hmm. from other mining. Copper is 25% of the market. Lead and zinc are 35% of the market. Gold is 12% of the silver market. Now, it's my, in my work, which I'm very yes. independent, as you well know, the, mar the world economy is contracting. It's not expanding. And the resource wars have started to kick in more and more, meaning mm -hmm. this is my lithium. Yeah. You can't mine it out of my country. And with that in mind, I think there'll be a contraction in the base metals. I'm not a real big, this is a next super cycle in the commodity sector. There's going to be a demand for monetary metals, gold, silver, and we could even add platinum, palladium, and agriculture, foodstuffs. But as far as copper, I'm not that bullish on it. I get it with the EVs. But I did a study. I put it in the paid version of the Morgan Report. It was a study of a study. It was a professor that took two years. And in order to get everyone in an EV, 
at the current mining rate of lithium, it would take about 1,600 years. Yeah. How does that work? Doesn't. And that's the worst one was lithium, but copper was like, I forget the numbers, three, 400 years. Even silver was, I think, uh, in the 100 year category. So the point being is that this let's go electric is just an absolute absurdity if you do the math. Now, that I have to caveat with in current technology. Uh, if there is a breakthrough somewhere, then it could change the dynamics. I say that with authority because my predecessor, Jerome Smith, predicted $200 silver by the mid 1990s. And honestly, he could have been right. The assumption he made was that the mining activity that the last 50 years held would continue for the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. And that was 350 million ounces of silver being mined in any given year. Well, now we do 850. So his error was that there wouldn't be an increase in mm -hmm. production of silver. And it did. Once we got into the heat bleach cyanide situation, it took off. But had he been correct and the mining curve stayed flat, we would, in theory, have been pretty much out of silver. So I always remember that lesson very well, that, you know, things can change in life rapidly without you, you yeah. forecast seeing it. So I always leave that open. But, but it, it's it. fascinating, though, also, I, I think you've brought up a point that I rarely hear, is that we can be all gung-ho on electric vehicles. You know, I'm probably keener on some of the materials that go in, but I'm, I'm also linking that to the decline in purchasing power. Like, you know, the, the, you know, it's the old Alan Greenspan line I live by, which he says, are you going to get your pension? He says, yeah, the good news is yes. The bad news, you'll be able to buy a cup of coffee with it. I mean, just that long-term decline. But I, I just want to emphasize what you said there because I rarely hear it. So we can be all gung-ho we want on going electric vehicle everywhere in the world. But you start with something like lithium. If that holds us back, well, that holds back copper demand too then because we're actually not building that, that you know, or cobalt demand. I just think what you've brought there is a very important aspect of that discussion. And one of the things that's been so impressive about the renewable discussion is it's absolutely devoid of any practical thinking, you know, so, uh, you know, certainly from the political side, you know, uh, right. the most, you might find right. this funny, David. I think the most flack I ever got was saying, hey, if you're good, I wasn't debating climate change, wasn't debating renewable energy. I just said, where are you going to get the materials from? And apparently I wasn't supposed to ask that question. But uh, anyways, right. but let's let's come also then. Um, do you look at, as I say, you look at the demand side, you look at the supply side in there. What about that relationship with gold? Do you, do you buy those ratios that you get told that this is undervalued because of the number of ounces per ounce of gold or that kind of thing? Ah, uh, yes mm -hmm. and no. I know I just contradicted myself, but going back to what I said earlier, on a monetary mm -hmm. only, you know, the ratio was was pegged at 16 to 1 by man, and that's what it was going for on the street at the time they pegged it. But it should be free-floating uh, and determine itself. I don't buy into it as much as a lot of people. It certainly suggests that silver is highly undervalued yeah. relative to anything on an inflation-adjusted basis and gold, because the the mean ratio is around 30 to 1 if you do a long-term study. So that's just an arithmetic average mean problem. It's easy to do. So it suggests we're very much favorable to buying silver over gold at this point in time. And the other thing is, if you look at it from more objective perspective, you know, platinum is 15 times rarer than gold. It's called the noble mm -hmm. metal. I mean, you know, I talk about four, three or four swimming pools Olympic swimming pools full is all the gold in the world. Uh, but platinum is 15 times rarer. So what does that do? A kitty pool? I don't know. But you get the idea. But it doesn't sell at 15 times the price of gold. It's selling for less mm -hmm. than gold. Usually here as a premium on the gold. So I look at it from that perspective. What's the right price? If we had a true free market, we would know. But we don't. And I just want to go a step further because... You know, I've, I'm asked often, do you believe in the manipulation or not? And yada, yada. And that's a debate that will go on forever. But in the Silver Manifesto, which I finally sold out of, but you can still get the PDF, so you get the electronic version. I have a chapter on the silver manipulation. And we use what's called the Sharpe's Ratio. You can look it up on Google. I'm trying to explain it all. You know, I do pretty deep thinking. But the Sharpe's Ratio is basically probability and, you know, what are the chances of a random walk? And if you do um, Bernie Madoff, 
it comes out like 78 is the number, which is highly suggestive of a fake, bony uh, market. You can't get that kind of a sharps ratio without yeah. manipulation or lying. Silver is above that. Hmm. Above that. So let's take, you know, I think I could argue it in court and, and convince almost any jury if I explained it in layman's terms and it gave me the amount of time. Not that I want to go to court to defend the silver market, although if they asked me, I would. But the idea that it's a, a free market or there's no manipulation or whatever is absolutely 100% ludicrous in my strong, studied opinion because the math proves otherwise. You can't get a curve like Madoff had, which is basically yeah. a 45 degree angle, you're making money every year, up market, down market. It's just impossible. And of course, it's impossible for silver to do what it does on a free market basis. Let me ask about the silver uh, mining industry, not the stocks is what I'm sorry, I should have said it that way, but the sure. stocks. And of course, you, you make a distinction and I'll just make people know in the Morgan report, you do, you know, junior stocks, you spell them out. This is speculative. This is your, you know, sort of blue chip silvers, that kind of thing. So I want to acknowledge that we've got to make that distinction. Um, what kind of like I'm looking at the gold stocks, for example, and they seem dramatically out of favor. You know, they're not even keeping pace with gold, which hasn't been a super performer. You know, uh, what about in the silver sphere that way? Oh, what a great question. I hope everyone really pays attention to what we're discussing right now. There has never been a bigger delta or a bigger differential between the price of the metal and the price of the underlying mining chains. So if you are a value yeah. investor, there's lots and lots of value in gold and silver. I answer your question this way. You know, I'm going to have to call the top in the market. Do we sell for fiat or not remains to be determined because you really don't want to sell for a currency yeah. that's failing. And will it be failing at the top? I don't know, but that will be the perception. So it'll be hard to move maybe into fiat and then in the land or whatever. So I'm off track. I digress. Let me come back. So at the top of the market, what I'm going to look for is what a PE ratio in gold looks like. PEs are pretty worthless in analyzing mining companies until you get to the top. A good gold company like a Newmont will sell at 30 times earnings. A good silver company will sell at 50 times earnings. There's a lot fewer silver producers yes. than there are gold producers. Silver is more scarce than most people think. And as you know, uh, if you go back into the 13th century, the natural ratio, and almost everybody gets this wrong, Eric Sprott and others, I'm sorry I called you out, Eric, but they'll tell you that the, the natural ratio is 16 to 1. Now, that's the monetary ratio. That's an arbitrary ratio set by man. The honest-to-God ratio back in the 13th century was 12 ounces of silver for every ounce of gold. Now it's 7 ounces of silver for every ounce of gold. So we're getting, we've gotten all, just like the oil market, we've gotten all the easy hanging fruit as the, the analogy mm -hmm. goes. And now the grades are degrading. It costs more. It's less plentiful. And we've got all the factors already discussed about how long it takes to put a mine in. The resource wars coming. And what is the demand going to be? And basically the demand, if you count investment demand, we've been in a deficit for some time and that will continue on both sides, investment and industrial. And once that fight starts where you're out of business at Tesla or you're out of business at Apple, if you don't have silver, do you really care what the mm -hmm. price is? You go a thousand dollars an ounce, but you only use, you know, 0.1% of the product goes into the cell phone that's silver. So it's meaningless on the demand side. It's inelastic. You'll pay any price to build that cell phone or you're out of business because it takes so little. If it was a silver cell phone, that'd be a different story, but it's not. And that's the case in almost all industrial uses. Where is it not applicable is jewelry, silver jewelry and silverware, and of course, silver investing. But outside of that, almost every application is such a small fraction of the overall cost of the end product that it's inelastic. It doesn't matter a yeah. whit. If silver's 100 or 1,000, you're going to have to buy it. You will buy it. That's such a great point. Um, can you give me just, and again, I'm not asking for maybe a specific recommendation. You have a, a newsletter that does that for people. But give me just a few of the names of the blue chips in that sphere. Sure. Well, let me do it this way because, you know, I've not gotten the subscriber base that we once had, and that's okay. I get it. And people are scared. They're holding on to their money. And I get it. If you don't know what to do, staying in cash is probably not a bad idea. But I like to think of it as the, the golden egg and the, gold, the goose that lays the golden egg. So if you take the top of the market back in September of 2000, gold was over 
roughly 2,000 an ounce. The Franco Nevada, one of my favorites, largest holding, personal favorite, was at $50. Now gold's about 2,000, but Franco's about 150. So would you like to have tripled your money in the gold space? And I write options on it too, because the betas are so high. So I'll take little, you might call it swing trades. I think it's overvalued. I will uh, write a call against it, clever to call one of the easiest things to do, one of the most lucrative things to do. So I pocket that money. I use that for my speculative investments. But that's it. Now let's talk about silver wheat. Uh, excuse me, wheat and precious yeah. metals. It's silver on the brain, as you know. So at that time, when silver peaked in uh, early May, late April 2000, silver was around 50 and silver Wheaton was X. I forget the number, but it's still at mm -hmm. X. So silver's been cut in half, and yet the stock is maintained, which proves that if you pick the right stocks, there's this big debate, and it's valid. It says that the metals outperform the stocks, and at times they do. So why would you even bother having a risk in a mining company? But if you know what you're doing, and I learned it the hard way, and pick the right companies, you can actually do very well but you've got to be able to invest. You've got to be able to get over the, let's say, novice mindset of buying low and selling high. You've got to pick the best companies. The mining sector isn't easy to analyze, but it's easy to get the, the end result because it's not like Coke and Pepsi that are just basically sugar water in a blue or red can. They're basically the same, but there's a differential between them. But gold is gold is gold is gold, and silver is the same thing. It's fungible. It's identical. So if you're in the gold business, what do you want? The most profitable yeah. company. I mean, it's pretty darn simple. So why would you buy a company that's searching for gold and put all your money in that when you might want to speculate in it? But if you want to be a gold investor, then find a company that produces gold and makes you money. And there's nothing better than the royalty and streaming companies. And that's why we've done much better than most in the industry. Because I learned the hard way buying too many juniors was in my 20s thinking I'd get rich and I'd forego that Corvette now because I'd owned two in two years. And I was wrong because most of those things go bankrupt. One out of 4,000 becomes a mine. If you hold them long enough, you'll get burned. And I love to speculate. I always have. But I do it very carefully now with money I can afford to lose. And I teach one thing that no one else does, in my view. I don't know if this is true or not, but I know the industry. I only add to speculation if and only if it materially changes. So. Um, for example, um, when the discovery was made in Ecuador with my friend uh, <clears throat> Keith Barron, that stock shot up dramatically. But if you did the analysis, it was way undervalued after a rocket mm -hmm. move. And people that knew that could buy it then and make a fortune, and many people did. Uh, this is great stuff. And that's why I would recommend to people, uh, you know, you can just check David out on Twitter. It's, it's very straightforward. Uh, not surprisingly, the Twitter handle is SilverGuru22. SilverGuru22. He's also, also, I should have said this, the author of three books. And of course, his newsletter, The Morgan Report, uh, all of that uh, as you follow. And I think a very exciting area of the market. And David, look, just know I appreciate you finding time for us. Look forward to visit again in the near future. It's always a pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Time now for the quote of the week. And man, is it ever pertinent as millions of children and young adults prepare to return to the classroom? Sorry to bring that up, but come on, we're only a couple of weeks away. Actually, I'll start with a couple of quotes leading to my quote of the week. I'll start with fourth year student at Ryerson University, Jonathan Bradley, who says in quotes, Canadian universities have become places where ideological conformity is expected and diversity of thought is seen as unacceptable. Another quote, this is from Mark Mercer of the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship. In quotes, students and professors are now fearful, not only of expressing the views they themselves hold, but even floating certain ideas to see what the criticisms are because they're worried they'll be sanctioned. I mean, there's so many other quotes like that because there's been a major move in education to, I think, squelch debate on a certain number of issues, something like climate change or gender issues. And of course, during the pandemic, I mean, my gosh, where it literally cost some professors or teachers their job for questioning the official narrative. And many more 
for not complying with the government vaccine mandate. But my point is, in many areas, critical thinking was discouraged in favor of advocacy. Nowhere was that more noticeable, by the way, than the attack on fossil fuels and climate change that was so unnuanced. Now, I'm not sure which is more damaging to society, by the way, or damaging to progress and damaging to innovation. Is it de-emphasizing critical thinking or the de facto censorship of sort of a no questions allowed on certain subjects? But all of it brings me to my quote of the week by George Carlin. In quote, they don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting screwed by a system that threw them overboard 30 years ago. Hmm. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. Well, let me add what COVID and the climate agenda make clear is they don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of even challenging the official narrative. You know, it's interesting. One aspect of interest rates, every time I hear about them, I start thinking of the federal budget. Now, I thought, hey, aren't we supposed to be cutting about $15 billion worth of the federal spending. Haven't had any sign on that, just a little update saying, yes, it's a tough job, but we're still looking at a $40 billion deficit this year. Mike Levy joins me right now. Yeah, Mike, I haven't seen much update on that. I know we're talking interest rates, but this is one of the big impact of that. But we're, you know, we've got other things on our mind and this one keeps coming back to me. Well, this is ever since the spring, Mike, and the government, liberal government has had nothing to say about curbing spending, how they're going to be more efficient, whether they're going to lay people off or not, whether they're, they're going to continue on their way. But the hot topic now has become debt, government debt, government deficits. It's all over the place. It's not only in Canada, it's in the US. Look what they're doing with their trillion dollar deficits. So it's the topic du jour. All of a sudden, there's a cabinet shuffle. Anita Anand becomes treasury board head, and her walking papers are to come out with a new plan. Oh my goodness, the old plan didn't work, and we're not even talking about that, or the plan before that, or the plan before that, going all the way back to 2015. Why should this be any different? But now it's on the radar. Yeah, and she said this week she's got to find $15 billion. But here's another part that I found. Uh, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. But they're not expecting to result in any job losses, you know, other than attrition, you know, the normal stuff. But I'm going, that's, that's a tough thing. But I, I, was she talking about, I mean, look at the size of the growth in the public uh, sector. Also look at the huge outsourcing. So, again, lots more questions when they make a statement like that. There's a ton of questions, Mike. You know, I was thinking when I was reading that this week and thinking about whether we would talk about it. What, is the federal public service a job for life? Because that's what comes to mind. Do they even lay off one person, 20 people, 100? Yeah. Tell us, out in British Columbia just did a restructure and they laid off thousands of employees. And you see it with, you saw it with Rogers, you saw it in the Shaw thing, but you see it all through the country. There are layoffs. In high tech, there are layoffs, but the federal government could not get along with one employee less. And that kind of money, well, here, just listen to the figures. The size of the federal public service stands at 357,000. 247, that's this year, up from 257 in 2015. That's an increase of almost 40% or 100,000 workers since the Liberals came in in 2015. Square that circle because I sure can't. Well, I go back to what Yves Giroux told us here on this show, Parliamentary Budget Officer. He said, every Canadian's got to ask, what did you get for the increase in spending, increase in manpower, and people can, you know, are absolutely their privilege to have an answer, but that's the question he said. Did you get any more? Uh, is your life any better? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Uh, you know, so people, as they say, have their own answer. Uh, when I hear that kind of a number, though, as you say, that massive jump in employees that's uh, excess of 100,000, wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fan. Can't there, can't there be a cut there also? I'm not saying we're going to cut so much of the civil service, but why are they exempt? And there are hundreds of thousands. Of, I mean, 
thousands of workers who are going to work every day doing the job, doing it well, but that is absolutely off the table. And Mike, it's not off the table for any other small, medium, or large-sized business in Canada. And I can't square that circle. Well, I'll tell you the other one, and we'll have to be quick here, but the other one is, of course, they spent records amount of money on consultants, on you know outsourcing, that kind of stuff, because we've had complaints by the Treasury Department and the Parliamentary Budget Office that it's not monitored the way regular employment is. Uh, and remember, they had to hire consultants to check the work of other consultants, you know, uh, but that's one place they could have a long look, because I think we're talking in the neighborhood of about... Uh, I think it was 16.7 billion, but that's off the top of my head. 16.7 billion in consulting. Well, that's one place they can have a look, uh, and that might save some full-time employment in the public sector. But yeah, I mean, there's still no explanations why that's exploded to the degree it has. And it's going to cost us all, yeah. all of we Canadians, more money. Yeah, it's. Uh, but and again, this is in the environment, Mike, of uh, Bank of Canada. We're looking at interest rates. Everyone is for their personal. Are we going to do something in September? Are we going to do something in November? Well, Mike, uh, my 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 take is like it has been the last several weeks. Even though we got this bump of inflation this past July and uh, up three point three percent year over year, I still think that the Bank of Canada and the Fed are going to sit this one out and see what the impact was of all the interest rate hikes over the past months and maybe give it a breather this time. Well, we'll be there to chronicle it. God willing, we'll be there to chronicle it. <laughs> Mike Levy, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. In a moment, I'm going to tell you how you can be one of three people to win a $10 billion Denera bill. But first, a shocking stat to get your attention. On Thursday, Argentina's central bank devalued the peso by 10, 18%, by 18%. Okay, you ready? And hiked their key interest rate from 97% to 118%. Wow. Let me give you a couple more stats, though. All shocking. The Turkish lira continues to hit all-time lows versus the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's down 51% versus the greenback since the beginning of 2022. Now, here's our inflation. 56%. Cuban peso, down 70%. I mean, think about this. Imagine this, you know, versus the U.S. dollar since January 22. Your inflation, 93%. Egyptian pound, down 49%. They got inflation at 66%. And one of the big all-time winners, the Venezuelan boulevard, down 86%. But you know what inflation is? 472%. You know what that's measuring? People don't want to hold those paper dollars, those boulevards. They don't trust it. They don't trust the government. And that's what happens, by the way, when governments control the central bank and why people, including the prime minister, should pay attention to monetary policy. But this is really what happens when confidence in government and in turn, the currency erodes. And once that confidence in the currency leaves, well, that's how you get hyperinflation. Politicos, including in the political commentary, I don't seem to appreciate that confidence ultimately drives the value of currencies and interest rates, uh, every investment market, and our standard of living, which is why I continue when I get a new policy or they're talking about one, I always say, hey, does that increase or diminish confidence and trust in government? And it's all over the world. You know, looking at Russia, they had initial gain in the ruble, and then it started to depreciate. I think its peak was last July, but it's down 40%. And what about our currency, though? You know, it's the old, oh, this can't happen here. Really? How about this? Look at the last 15 years worth of the U.S. dollar. We're down 26%. In terms of buying power, though, despite massive technological advancements bringing prices down, especially you look at manufacturing or maybe farming, mining, drilling, etc., well, our dollar's purchasing power has also gone down. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's anything like in the developing world, but it is the same process which produces steady erosion in the purchasing power. And that's what we're worried about. What does my dollar buy? Which is why I say the key for individuals going forward is protecting the purchasing power of your paper currency. That's what we really talk about here. I mean, it's already been eroded, I think, much more. I think every response from government is going to be inflationary and print up money if we have a real problem. Now, back to giving away that 10 billion dinero bill from my personal collection, I might add. 
All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca, and sign up for five minutes with Mike. It's absolutely free, but we're going to be a, do a draw out of everybody who's part of five minutes with Mike, and we'll announce the winners on next week's show. And yes, as I said, it's free and it's cool. I mean, how many people do you know with a $10 billion dinero bill? I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in here right now. Ozzy, I've got to give you a little warning. I've got a shocking stat that starts us off. You know, you and I, for uh, coming on three years now, have been talking about immigration and are we ready for it? Are we ready? Do we have the housing, the other infra- social infrastructure? And the answer is clearly no. But it's not, you know, we had the minister say, hey, that's not going to deter him. We're going to still have those kind of numbers. Okay, let me give you a number. And you're sitting down. Okay, we crossed the 40 million population mark on June 17th. Flash forward just two months and over 251,000 newcomers or the population grew by 251,000 in two months. Well, and as you know, as you've been talking about, Ozzy, look at our housing starts last year, 240,000. The entire year's housing starts didn't match two months, and we saw no sign of slowing down. Well, the crazy part is that we always talk about housing, but we are, with these people, we need extra government services like yeah. health care, like hospitals, like schools, like roads, outside, everything that has to be built and comes in addition to that. And in terms of house building, well, we the global mayor just had a headline, developers don't build because costs are 30% based on a UDI study, just taxes. I mean, think about it. Before you say hello, you have a slew of taxes, and everybody is blaming everybody else. I mean, our conservative leader blames Trudeau. Trudeau blames the developers, and supply will bring down houses, but it's the cost levels of government that impose on construction new housing is that creates the ridiculous prices we see in every part of the country, but particularly Toronto and Vancouver. Now, this isn't, I mean, this isn't scintillating radio, what I'm going to ask you to do here in a sec. But I think it's important that people get an idea of the variety of charges that a developer could face. You know, they do do change in different jurisdictions, and I appreciate that. But you just mentioned like the two hot housing markets, and they're very similar in this. Just give me an idea of the list of charges. You know, it's not just... Yeah, the building, it's what goes into it. Well, UDI did an interesting uh, report that looked at the various taxes and fees if you want to build something in Vancouver. They took an 800-square-foot condo in 2023 that sold for, are you sitting down, $1.12 million. And the under-per-unit charge, it includes a building permit at 1376 a development permit at 3992 a development cost levy of 28368 a per-square-foot property transfer tax of 13688 property tax including additional school tax, 11480 a community amenity contribution, if you know what that is, 89992 a public art fee of $1,500. 84 GST when you sell it at 56,000, a greater Vancouver sewerage development cost of 1,988, a TransLink development cost of 1,554, and a per unit property transfer tax of 20,400. Hey, Mike, $300,000, more than $300,000, makes up almost 30% of the cost before you say hello. Yeah, and again, that's a long list, and that's our point. Not that people will remember them or that, but it's incredible what goes into that. And remember, we featured uh, a report by Benjamin Tao of CIBC, I believe, just going back about three weeks, Ozzy, you were talking to us about it. If we just remove the PST, or sorry, HST, pardon me, yeah. HST from purpose-built rental housing development, it was something in the neighborhood of saving around 60 grand in a big center like Toronto. Calgary's going there real fast too, but you know, Vancouver, the major urban centers. But we're talking, think about that. Just the 60,000 yeah. per unit. Oh, per yeah. unit, yes, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you have 200 units, that's a big buck. And it was a difference of developer losing 20% or making 10. You know, it was crazy. But the crazy thing is we just talk about these taxes, but we also have green building requirements that Mm. can be very costly. Then we have such a thing as materials have gone up dramatically. We haven't even talked about that. Or labor, my goodness gracious, or fuel. The costs in, in general are going up to such an extent 
But some developers just swap their hands. Yeah, and I think that's the frightening part because I agree with everyone who's saying we've got a supply problem, you know, can't meet the demand because we're bringing in a lot of newcomers. We weren't in great shape before, but this has been, you know, record amounts of people coming in over the last several years. And, uh, you know, I just think people go, yeah, I, I'm, they're discouraged. They're worried. Uh, and it's just everywhere you look, there's more money being added to the cost. It's just not as straightforward. But as you said a moment ago, Ozzy, like you've got developers now backing off when we need supply. You know, saying we can't yeah. make a go of this. Because when you look at the 60s or the 70s or the 80s, there was no way we had those taxes laid yeah. over onto the development. We compare, we, we compare ourselves to those years. How come we build them that cheaply? Well, there were on 30% of the costs were on taxes. Well, some of the builders, the uh, Canadian Home Builders Association just reported in its second quarter report just this, uh, this, this week that... Um, 22% of Canadian home builders canceled their project in the second quarter. They just remain uh, firmly pessimistic, it says, and that they're well below the numbers of the uh, previous two years. And there's no way that they're going to get anywhere near the 5.8 million gap in housing supply. Yeah. They say it remains incompatible. Yeah, it's. I mean, as I say, we had 240,000 last year home builders now it's going to be less this year at the rate we're going at the rate we're going it's going to be less but nowhere near the kind of numbers that the cmhc said we need and that's why i say every time ozzy that this is to be continued but i i just think i don't see any sign that we're handling this uh as we don't in many things we've got to go fundamentally here and say okay what's holding it back when you hear from developers saying i'm backing off what can we do to help you know, and you, you mentioned inflation is one of the byproducts of, you know, uh, supply shortages going back, but amidst a monstrous increase in money supply. So we shouldn't be surprised. Labor costs are going up. Yeah, this is this is not a formula that's going to end with a happy ending. Well, and, you know, and for some builders are just given back to deposits, as we had an example yeah. in Richmond, some 400 buyers and some builders go bankrupt in Victoria. One went bankrupt and he's. $55 million. Well, okay, on that cheerful note, thanks. No, <laughs> but this is the reality of one of the most serious things, and I've said it very clearly. I thought we were really going to have to come to grips with a housing crisis. We started saying it three years ago, been emphasizing it regularly, and it just seems to be in the uh, public consciousness, the wide public consciousness, and I don't see it getting better with the kind of things we've talked about today. But in the meantime, Ozzy, you go out and have a, well, as best you can, a great week. Well, thank you, Mike. Well, I spend a lot of time in the gym. I love all these machines, but my favorite machine is the vending machine. <laughs> I was waiting for what was your favorite machine. I can see that. Ozzy Jurek, you can find him, though, at uh, ozbuzz.ca. Pardon me, I stumbled for a sec because I was thinking of uh, asking you to sign up. It's free to sign up. You sign up on the site. You get the weekly Ozbuzz, but ozbuzz.ca. I'm going live to the trading desk. Victor Dare joins me right now. There's lots of stuff I want to hit on here, Victor, but I got to start with interest rates keep rising. And I know you've been tracking that 10-year treasury. What is it now? We are at a 16-year high or are we going even more than that? Uh, we hit a 16-year high uh, this week. Um, Canadian 10-year bond was about a 13-year high. In the UK, uh, the 10-year hit a 25-year high. There's just being upward pressure on interest rates here. And it really began in April. You know, we had the scare in March with the Silicon Valley Bank and, and interest rates dropped and everybody thought maybe we're going to go into a, a recession. Then we had very swift action from the authorities uh, and the market said, okay, that was that kind of blew over quickly. Mm -hmm. And from that point, beginning of April, we've had a steady March higher. I'd say there's a couple of things that have accounted for it, and probably leading one is that the American economy continues to confound the people who think that a recession is just around the corner. It has been stronger than expected, which means the Fed is likely to keep rates higher for longer. Inflation is likely to be higher for longer. And uh, another factor, and I don't know how you quantify this in terms of importance, but clearly, the government is going to be issuing a lot more paper and somebody's got to buy it. So <clears throat> I don't think there's any doubt that people will buy it. It's just at what price. 
Well, one of the things I, I want to make sure people understand is the significance of this. Someone may say, well, I don't own a 10-year bond, or maybe I want to own a 10-year bond, whatever. No, what I think the significance is, can you imagine the size of the bond losses? You know, people, I just want to remind people that when, if I own a bond and it's paying me 1%, and now I can get 4.3%, if I want to sell my bond, I got to discount it severely. I mean, that was at the underlying problem for the Silicon Valley Bank. You know, they looked at what their holdings were, they needed to liquidate, and they had huge losses. That was the problem with the uh, UK pension fund. You know, they needed to uh, get some cash. They looked at their bond portfolio in October and uh oh, and that forced the central bank. So the significant ripple potential of this, when you've got anybody who bought a 10 year bond in the last 16 years is underwater, you know, and as you say, in the UK, 25 years, you know, in Canada, 13 years, this is where the action is going to be going forward, in my opinion. And that's why, you know, uh, I'm glad you bring that up because, man, I just think the ripple and the significance is huge. Well, you know, the Federal Reserve has got fairly blunt tools to try to control inflation. And the one that they've been using is to raise interest rates, or that's one of the tools. Mm -hmm. and, and they know that raising interest rates has a big impact on all aspects of the economy. The funny thing is, it happens with a lag, so that's hard to measure. But it was sort of, that was all they could do. Then alongside that, and I've written in my blog where I said that the, the fiscal stimulus sort of overmatched what the Fed was trying to do. Here's the, the government pumping money into the system while and, and creating inflation by doing that, while the central bank over here is trying to control or keep inflation from getting higher, and that they're at cross-purposes to some degree. I just think that I'm glad you brought that up. That is a story that is underreported, underappreciated. So people are suffering uh, with higher interest rates, and, and not so much in the U.S. mortgage market because the predominant mortgage is a 30-year, but we know ours is a five-year. So we're now getting into that phase where people are refinancing. And when we talked to Mike Moffat going back a couple of weeks, he said, I just refinanced this 1400 bucks extra a month. This is crushing. What I want people to know is for all the talk, your government is making it worse. Well, we've got, you know, the central banks trying to discourage spending and reduce inflation. You've got the governments taking measures that actually increase inflationary pressures. And, and again, I'm really glad you brought that up because, boy, that's getting overlooked. I mean, sometimes I'm going to get in trouble for this. I just think the political commentary, it's lack of understanding of economics or focus on economics renders their analysis uh, to be nothing short of uh, drivel. There we go. I'm off the Christmas list, Vic. Something you'd never be impolite to say, I just did. But, well, but your points, I mean, the ripple effects are huge is the bottom line. When you have this sort of record-breaking up move, and now the 10 years are coming back, all of that stuff, incredibly important. Well, you said ripple effect, and uh, the other interest rate that we maybe are less aware of is what we call the real interest rate. That is mm -hmm. the coupon after you take out inflation. And the 10-year real yield in the United States is at a 14-year high. So if you're a company uh, that's got a gleam in your eye and you're listed on the NASDAQ, that means you're spending money. You're not, you haven't got any money coming in. So you've got these financing costs. And the real rising real interest rates really hits those kinds of businesses. So rising interest rates just impacts everything for sure. And, you know, some markets more than others. Uh, another big issue, and we, I don't want to run out of time before we discuss these two things. One is China and the other is some of the impact on the stock market. But, I mean, talk about another sort of narrative that was obliterated was when China reduces its COVID restrictions, there's going to be a massive demand. And it's understandable why people thought that. We saw it in North America where pent-up demand really came to the rescue as soon as restrictions were lifted. Didn't happen in China. And now we find uh, things are a lot worse than I think most people appreciate, that, uh, that now the numbers start coming out. And you and I talked about Evergrande, the biggest property development debacle in history, you know, uh, uh, now declaring bankruptcy on Friday uh, in the U.S., $300 billion, all of that. So the China story is not underpinning the stock market, at least in a positive way. Yeah, the China story has been out there, and I mean, I don't want to be wrong by grossly simplifying it, but 
from my perspective, looking at it for the past few years, I saw a massive increase in leverage. And in my professional career, I've always been sensitive to trying to have a handle on leverage because to me, leverage just always spelled potential trouble. So we'll hear about the shadow banking yeah. system in China. And I think that's really where the trouble is because shadow means it's kind of opaque. You, you don't kind of see this stuff until it bites you, as it were. Um, the RMB, the currency, hit a 16-year low this week. There was uh, looked like serious intervention from the authorities to keep it from falling further. Uh, Kevin Muir, a, a frequent guy, a speaker here with us on this program, is writing about uh, how the, the, the Japanese are, are, are a problem for the Chinese because the Japanese currency has been falling and falling. Yes. So there's these interplay between different things. I'm just saying in the currency markets here, you've heard it so many times from me, capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. And I we're seeing it here the last, uh, call it four to five weeks, the U.S. dollar's up about 4%. And to me, that is a lot of capital saying, hey, you know, things are getting a little shaky here. Let's, let's, let's go to where it's safe, and, and that's America. You know, at the World Outlook Conference, I sort of simplified that. And I said, if you're saying bye to the U.S. dollar, what you're really saying is geopolitical problems aren't going to happen, for, you know, financially and uh, more politically, but you're saying they're not happening because of what you've just said, Vic. Every time you get major worries, the money flows back into the U.S. And so far, so good. I'll, uh, I'll give myself a check mark for that understanding. Uh, but let me just quickly go to the stock market. We finally got some of that correction. I mean, I'm not suggesting, uh, you know, Tony Greer thought it would be short-lived, uh, you know, last week, and I'm certainly not debating that, but we certainly have had some weakness. Yeah, this, the, the S&P is down about 5% from the highs that we had at the end of July. And the end of July was the highest monthly close ever, except for December of 2021. Uh, the NASDAQ, which had been flying a little higher, a little closer to the sun, it's down about 9% from the size. But keep this in mind, and I actually had to go and check the math just to be sure I was right on this. So uh, the S&P down about 5.5%. But, you know, from uh, mid-March until mid-July, it had risen 20%. So, yeah, it, yeah I, could, I could be with Tony on this. And, and I've been trading the stock market from the short side for the, since mid-July. We talked yeah, about it on yeah. the show here, that huge jump in Microsoft. Uh, you know, and it, to me, it's just a trade. There's the, the, it's a strong economy. The interest rates are likely to stay higher for longer and inflation and all that. But so, so far... It's just a correction. The, the, the vulnerable point on the stock market, I think, is this. The people and the machines, I call them, the mechanical programs, that bought into this market late, near the highs, the reason I is, may start to turn sellers. Clearly, some of them already have. And that's that positioning thing that you and I talk about so much. So I think that's the wild card right now. And I'll just add one more thing we've been talking about. But you know what? That 5 5.5% five I can grab right now you know, for a year or two years is looking pretty sweet. I think that's still competition. In the In meantime, Vic, funds, yeah. yes, yeah. In the meantime, Vic, I'll invite people to go to victoradare.ca. You're talking about the blog and talking about the charts. You know I love them. victoradare.ca. Vic, go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, it's interesting that this week, many members of the media, self-described progressives, are upset that Pierre Polyev didn't answer the question about whether he's trying to, in quotes, court the far-right vote. You might notice they didn't provide any definition of what far-right means. I'm sure they think they know what it means. But come on, are you suggesting for a second there's one universally accepted definition of far-right? Because that's ridiculous. And there's nowhere... No way Pierre Polyev or anyone else should play the game like that. If someone is accusing you of someone, hey, wouldn't you like to know specifically what it is? When he asked the reporter, hey, who are your experts that you're referring to? There was no answer. But you know what? My advice to the media, if you really have a point to make, then get more specific. What specific policies or views do you think Mr. Polyev is trying to court and provide evidence to back up your accusation? I don't think it's too much to ask for specifics because otherwise the question advances nothing in terms of our understanding. 
And if that's not your goal, if you indeed don't care if it advances our understanding, well, you know what? All it does is make you appear half-baked or self-absorbed. But while we're on the topic, though, of the far right and no definition, I'm sure some people are angry that I even asked for specifics, for clarification. But maybe they could help me out personally and get answer a few questions. Tell me what you mean by this. Maybe I'm on the far right. For example, am I on the far right because I believe in free speech? Because I care about government wasting tax dollars and ineffective spending? Because some people suggest that I am or say dismiss those kind of points by saying, oh, you're on the far right. But am I on the far right because I believe in measurable goals and accountability, including in the public sector? Or that I think practical approaches to issues like climate change are far more important than virtue signaling? I'm just wondering, am I on the far right because I believe in doing a cost-benefit analysis of government programs and expenditures? Because I promise you, some people think that's the case. I'm on the far right because I believe making patients wait medically unacceptable times for treatment, at times even dying, that that necessitates or demands a radical change in healthcare delivery, and know what? Incorporating more private care. Also, am I on the far right because I point out that 28% of healthcare spending is already on private care? I mean, there's more examples, but you get the idea. All of those beliefs and approaches put me at odds with government. So that spurs some people to dismiss it by saying, oh, you're on the far right. Well, you can decide for yourself. In the meantime, look, I hope you go out and have a terrific week. But I want to remind you of that 10 billion dinara bill. Three people are going to win it. All you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, sign up for five minutes with Mike, and we'll do a draw. I'll let you know next week. So just sign up for five minutes with Mike, which you should do anyways, but also you'll be part of the draw for the 10 billion dinara bill. Be the only one in your neighborhood with one. I'll bet that. Also join me on Michael Campbell's Money Talks. And I really appreciate when you join me on Money Talks tweets. And I think you benefit from it because the array of information that I'm not seeing prominently displayed in the mainstream media, I think has a great deal to do with what's impacting you in your life. In the meantime, As I said, I hope you have a terrific week.